Welcome to this episode of Mapping Out Ethereum 2.0 with Christine Kim and Will Foxley. Join the conversation as the ETH 2.0 Dream Team discuss its live development, its potential impact on the crypto markets, and spotlight major Ethereum news events as they develop. Just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. And now, here is Christine and Will. Hello, and welcome to our very first episode of Mapping Out Ethereum 2.0 with the ETH 2.0 Dream Team, aka myself, Christine Kim, and my fellow colleague, Will Foxley. How are you doing today, Will? Doing well yourself. Not bad, not bad. Very excited for it. today's inaugural episode where we're going to be spilling the beans on how Coindesk came to stake on Ethereum 2.0 in the very first place and how we got this whole Valid Points newsletter project started. For everybody who's listening who have no idea what Valid Points is, that's good. Please stay tuned to this episode to find out. To help explain and narrate this very eventful timeline of events that culminated in Coindesk spinning up its own Ethereum 2.0 validator node on Amazon Web Services is Coindesk's Director of Engineering, Spencer Beggs. Thanks for being on the show, Spencer. Thanks so much for having me, Christine. Uh, This was a really fun project, and I'm glad you uh, asked me to join. And it's been a project that you came into mid-December but actually had been thinking of way back last September, which I do want to kind of go into in a little bit more detail. But before I I do that and lay the ground on on what's going on with our actual node, I want to explain how this idea kind of came about in the first place. So way back in July last year, I wrote this research report on everything that people needed to know about the launch of Ethereum 2.0, which at the time back in July, developers were saying it's going to happen before the end of the year. And when we published that research report, it did very well among readers. I think it's actually still one of the most viewed and downloaded research reports today on Coindesk. But it got a lot of attention internally within the Coindesk company on the Ethereum 2.0 launch. So one of my colleagues here at the Coindesk company who I don't know if they'd be super comfortable with me sharing their name on this podcast. So I'll just call that person Joe. But Joe had talked to me and said, hey, I read your report. I loved it. What if we as a Coindesk company started this project around covering the Ethereum 2.0 launch and by being one of those early network validators on Ethereum 2.0? So I love that idea. And me and Joe, we took that to our chief content officer here at Coindesk, Michael J. Casey the very next day. And that's when we actually started to build out the project from there. Spencer, you told me that you were thinking about this whole project back around that time too. Tell me how you kind of got your idea for this. How did you kind of come to this project? Oh yeah. Uh, when, When it was announced that you were going to be doing this, I said, no, wait, wasn't that my idea? Uh, I had been talking to um, uh, Noel, who's our head of research, uh, about possibly doing this. And I said, you know, we should get some hardware and, and try to spin stuff up. We'd sort of kicked it around. And then uh, when you announced this, I was like, oh, that's that's what I wanted to do. I'm glad I got a chance to jump in and uh, help out with it. It's really been fun. Yeah, I mean, great minds think alike. And well, honestly, once I got the tentative approval from Michael Che Casey to do this and and formulate like a concrete plan around this, a lot of my time was just spent looking for people who wanted to help, looking for people who wanted to create 
this project and build the content around Ethereum 2.0 together and run this node. There were so many aspects of it. And honestly, the first person that I thought of to help with the project, who better than you yourself, my fellow co-host, Will Foxley. I mean, when you first started at Coindesk, I think our first interaction was me handing over my Ethereum reporting responsibilities over to you. So, I mean, you were, in my mind, I was like, well, there's this guy at our company who already is reporting so much on Ethereum. Like he has to be part of this. Will, what was your initial reaction to when I, when I first approached you and said, hey, this is what I'm doing. You want to you wanna join? Yeah, it feels like forever ago now. What's it, January? And we started talking about this in September or October, forgetting what the month was. But yeah, I started looking at doing it myself on my laptop when the Madasha testnet, which was ETH2's one of multiple multi-client testnets, uh, that was spun up in September. And I started downloading everything on my work laptop to start being a validator for that testnet. And it's a lot lower barrier to entry because you just need fake ETH to work on the testnet. Got that fake ETH from like a faucet online and then start downloading everything, all the code, but then my laptop just like could not handle it. And my roommates at the time were frustrated because I was like eating up all our internet bandwidth trying to get this thing to work. Um, I remember I was like having trouble doing my articles for the day because my laptop would get so hot from downloading all the, the data. So I was like, yeah, this isn't gonna work. So I kind of abandoned it. But serendipitous, I guess, like I think a week or two later, you pinged me, you're like, hey, I'm thinking of this idea. And yeah, seems like a pretty natural click just to be like working together on the project. It's been a long journey since then. We've had a lot of roadblocks, which I guess we'll probably get into later in the podcast uh, or maybe not. This, yeah. The Padaja testnet has been a, was kind of my entry. Let's get into some of those roadblocks now too, because I, I want to talk about this. <laughs> <No>. I mean, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, I feel like you and I, on the content side, we're so ready yeah. and so able to write articles, do podcasts, write newsletters, all these things tied to this project. But when it came to the technical side of getting our 32 ETH, staking it on the network, becoming a validator, that's really where there was just so much difficulty and a lot of learning, let's say. Let's spin it a, a little positively learning. here. A lot of learning because there's less learning if you just do everything perfectly. You got to, you know, fall down a couple times to really learn new stuff. So I think one of the biggest areas of debate and confusion was, okay, listen, how are we going to stake on Ethereum 2.0 and become a validator? We can either set it up ourselves if we have the technical know-how and, and the time and, and et cetera, or we can just go through a staking as a service provider. Spencer, you know the technical side of this way better than either Will or I. How do you view that choice for people who are interested in staking on Ethereum 2.0 between doing it themselves, running it independently in their own house, kind of like what Will was trying to do with the Madasha testnet, but clearly, I mean, it made his roommates angry at him, versus just going with a staking as a service provider? Yeah, you know, if I can back up for, for one minute, I've always been interested in Ethereum, but I kind of became reinterested in Ethereum after we did the uh, ETH 2.0 event, which I'm going to say was in August. I had started to learn Solidity uh, just to play around with it, maybe two years ago, and then kind of forgot about it. And then when I came back to it, one, I found the tooling was much better and was much easier to work with these days. Also, I found a, a really pretty great book to, to go through, and I found that getting the code to run 
wasn't all that hard. Now, getting it to do something useful, that's sort of the, the challenge. But, you know, I, I really think to, you know, really be all in on doing the, the programming side of it, it, it really helps to really understand how the network works and uh, be able to utilize it yourself. So I had started window shopping for stuff. Now at home here, I work on a very powerful computer. I'm in front of a computer all day. I'm doing coding work. So uh, get sort of the best hardware available. But it, it was very clear to me that same thing, even on my computer, I wouldn't want to be running these things locally on my computer all day. If you, you know, want to do it, you probably do need some dedicated hardware. There's also just like a little bit of uh, space concerns for how much space you, know, you need to sync an ETH1 node, and that can take up a lot of space on, on your hard drive. And also, you, know, you need to turn off your computer or it crashes or something. It's probably better to do it on dedicated hardware because you're going to want to keep your, your hardware running. So yeah, I, I think that when you go back to it, you really are deciding whether to run on dedicated hardware in your home or, you know, as we did, set it up on cloud infrastructure. And, you know, there's sort of like some costs and benefits you need to think about. So like uh, if you have some basic understanding of how to use a command line, you know, you're familiar with maybe some, some Linux. I, there's lots of great guides out there that you can follow. I followed a bunch of guides, sort of remix them. Now, when you're doing this on hardware that you know you physically have control over, right? It's no problem to just be able to unplug the computer, boot into it, you know, run your commands as as the root user and things like that. The root user is sort of like a god mode. You know, you can delete things, you can read everything. Now, when you set up something in the cloud, there's a thing called a virtual private cloud, which Amazon offers, which is sort of like an encapsulation of all of our infrastructure pieces. But you know, you're putting that computer out of your control. Your server is in faraway state. You're remotely accessing it. Likewise, you know, there are many people that have access to our development accounts. There's various permissions. Uh, and you're also exposing it to the network in a much different way than you are even in, in your home, where you have just a lot more control between like, you know, setting up a, a firewall rules in your in your home router uh, versus setting up, you know, much more complex firewall rules to prevent bad actors from sort of uh, getting into your, your, your system or trying to find, find their way in. So in, in one way, you know, running it on uh, cloud infrastructure, there's a lot more security things you need to be concerned about. Not to say that you don't need to be concerned about security running it locally. The other thing is that when you run all of the pieces together, you do need some relatively powerful hardware. You can run a validator on like a Raspberry Pi, but you also need like the ETH node and some other things. You know, a lot of the hardware recommendations you look around, when I was window shopping, I found some like uh, Intel NUCs, which are like a next unit computing. So like little tiny computers. They look like Mac minis or something like that. A lot of people set up nodes on them. And you also need some like solid state hard drive to be able to have fast IO between the processor and your system. If you really wanted to run a node, it looks like you were going to spend about $1,700 on just the hardware to run a, a pretty good node. I think you could cut some corners and, and run some things. Also, if you're not going to run your own ETH1 node, you can you know use one of these cloud providers to help you out with that. Now, when you do use like AWS or something like that, you're charged for the, the hardware you rent. It looks like right now, but the hardware that I think we're going to go live with costs about $120 a month. So if you think about it, that's fairly close to $1,700 to, to run it yourself. So the sunk cost of buying hardware that you're going to run 
yourself might balance out against something that you know you have to keep paying for something in cloud infrastructure. I'm actually going to run a node myself at home if I can acquire the rest of the ETH. The prices are going crazy. Uh, I'm running it in a little bit of a novel way, and so I just bought a small computer to play around with. Yeah, those are really important considerations, Spencer. And honestly, you got to get in on the the ETH now because I don't think from yesterday's price action, it's just getting more and more expensive to become a Ethereum 2.0 validator. I mean, I'm very glad that when Will and I pulled the trigger on buying the ETH, I think it was November of last year, we did it when we did because I definitely did not expect the prices to kind of shoot up like this. And it'll be interesting to see kind of compare the cost dynamics of your hardware infrastructure being run uh, versus the one with Coindesk Validator, which is up in the cloud. Those will be two very cool operations to see live and compare their performance. A little bit on the same topic, but also of comparing, you know, two different ways you can set up the node. Will, you were part of the early discussions where we weren't so much considering, you know, do we do this node ourselves on the cloud or ourselves through our own hardware devices? But you were part of those discussions trying to figure out, do we do this ourselves, period, or do we go with a staking as a service provider? What were the main pros and cons that you were evaluating from that conversation? Yeah, kind of just clicking back the clock there. I think this was early November, late October, when we kind of finally got to the point where we were all in on doing an ETH2 node. Um, We're looking at the different options. And initially, I was wanting to run a node myself, but the situation I was in just didn't make it possible because it has to be up for a long period of time and purchase things and put it all together. Just because Spencer is explaining, it's pretty complicated and requires a lot of time besides uh, normal daily activities. With that off the table, we kind of started looking around at some of these staking as a service providers, and there's a lot out there. There's got to be at least over 15 at this point, not even including exchanges that operate staking services like Coinbase or Kraken. But for us, we were kind of looking at who can do this for us quickly so we can get up and start running a ETH2 node right when we launch this podcast and right when we launch our newsletter. And who can provide data for us? Uh, and then the last consideration, if I remember correctly, was which provider can we take our keys back from and run our own node again at some point in the future? Kind of like move control back into our own hands, if you will. So that's what I remember. Christine, what are your thoughts on the, those early days? I think you explained it perfectly. I mean, I think that our long-term intentions was always to, to try out running the validator node ourselves, but thought that, you know, to time it with the launch, to time it with the beginning of the network, uh, the quick and dirty way would be to just uh, use a staking as a service provider in the short run. To which case, I mean, I think we're actually ahead of schedule because we're just going straight to running the node ourselves now. Because long story short, I mean, our initial announcement post had said, you know, we're going to be using Bison Trails uh, as the staking as a service providers. And if that name rings a bell, it's probably because you saw the frenzy on Twitter of Bison Trails acquisition by cryptocurrency exchange Coinbase, which was, you know, a, a big announcement. And I think it speaks to one of the reasons why Bison Trails ended up backing out of the project around mid-December of last year. We had had a bunch of roadblocks kind of leading up to that point, but the decision from Bison Trails to not end up going through with the project of setting up the Coindesk Validator node for us was one that was quite responsible on their end. 
and they actually gave us kind of a, a statement to, to share publicly with our, our readers. This is the quote. This is what uh, Bison Trails gave to us on December 16th. He said, as longtime readers of Coindesk, we were excited by the opportunity to help Coindesk participate in Ethereum 2.0. As an infrastructure provider, our goal is to provide our customers with secure and reliable infrastructure. Acting as a data provider to inform editorial coverage simply falls outside of our core competencies of providing secure enterprise-grade infrastructure at this point in time, uh, end quote. So that, in all its language, I think was hinting at the direction that Bison Trails was going that was very different from Coindesk's editorial inter- intentions with this, with this project. Well, what were kind of your takeaways from, from how that phase of this project ended? Uh, it was definitely super frustrating uh, to be on one side of it. Kind of looking back and seeing like the Coinbase news that you just brought up, especially since that deal between Coinbase and Bison Trails was inked mid-December. So the timing kind of makes sense. Like Bison Trails was a small-ish provider. I mean, they've been involved with some bigger projects like Libra but a smallish like provider that Coindesk could have worked with. But I think once Coinbase was rolling in with a uh, pocket change, kind of makes sense to uh, get rid of your liabilities. From the outside looking in, I was like, oh, why, why is this not happening? This, is, this could be so simple. We could be staked already. We could have everything going, but here's another roadblock. And now Christmas is here and New Year's and we don't have any way to do this. And this is frustrating. And I totally, I was sharing that with you, Will. I mean, (laughs) it's hilarious because I feel like looking back on it now, it was tough in the moment, but because I think for our readers, our intention was to be on the network. Our intention was to be staked right at, you know, December 1st. But the learning that we got from, these are some of the considerations you have to take when using a staking as a service provider versus not was not something we would have gone through or like understood really as users if we hadn't even tried going down the option of using a staking as a service provider like Bison Trails. And I feel like we had really gone down that route and obviously it didn't end up working out. But at that moment when, you know, all hope was lost, we were like, okay, well then what do we do? Do we just, you know, set up our own node? But how, like who's going to help us? Spencer out of the blue just DM'd me on Slack saying, Hey, you know, I'm like really looking forward to my E2 hardware coming in the, in the mailbox, like the new year. And I was like, hello, excuse me. Immediately from there, I mean, I kind of latched onto Spencer and tried to commandeer his time for this project. Even doing this with you, Spencer, I'm learning so much about how setting up the Ethereum 2.0 node works. I mean, Spencer, do you want to share with our listeners a little bit about the learnings that you've had doing this, of, of getting the Ethereum 2.0 node up and running, some of the major questions and like uncertainties you had th- that you figured out and how you figured it out, that process. So first of all, I'm actually really glad that Coindesk is going through the process to run our own node. Even if we'd had a partnership with a cloud provider or something like that, I think that something that is interesting about this project is you're going to see us struggle through this together. I'm not an expert in Ethereum. I know what I know. I'm a coder by trade, but I'm what you call a full stack engineer. But you know, I don't have a degree in computer science, nor do I have an expertise in cybersecurity. Uh, all of this is very interesting from the security perspective. Obviously, you know, we do these things all the time. 
One thing that was interesting about setting up the Ethereum node is you really do think about security. You know, where are you storing your keys and your mnemonics? The one thing I'll say, the one weird experience I have is, you know, you start thinking like in a really paranoid manner. I know that when we have a, a hardware wallet and Will was transferring the ETH to me to um, prepare for the staking, I feel like we were all sweating on that Zoom call. We were like, okay, you know, send a test transaction. Okay, I see it to make sure that we went through it the right way. With cloud hardware, you have to think about, you know, there's a server somewhere, but just exposing it to the internet means that people can come by and discover you and try to hack in. And so you, you have to think about how you button down that environment. Some of that stuff is standard, you know, Linux operating procedure, but in the validator, the key store and stuff is, is hot. If someone were to be able to get access to your, your server and escalate their permissions so that they're like um, a root user or the user that has access to those keys, they could possibly read your keys. So you're, you start thinking like a, a spy. And then, you know, one of the most important things is that our server is not just exposed publicly on the internet. One of the most important things is that uh, we use a virtual private network or VPN to be able to even access it. So someone that wants to access the computer and get into it has to have a couple different things. One, they have to have a, a user with admin permissions. You would have to have a key that we keep offline, but we also delegate access to allow, that's what the process I went through last week with you guys to get you access. You know, you need to make sure that your server in its network is both available, but also protected from the outside not to talk too much inside baseball, but you know the outer circle, if you imagine it, is what's called a, a VPC, your virtual private cloud. That's a grouping of infrastructure components in uh, AWS that you use. The server itself, which is a Linux distribution that you know you need to do some some setup on. So I sort of think about this as like there's the server, and then that server exists in a private subnet connects to a private subnet. So it's isolated. You can't actually access it unless you're in from the outside. And that's what the VPN does is when I come in through the VPN, I'm now inside this uh, virtual private cloud and I'm able to even talk to the computer. So the server then sort of exists in, in here. We're able to get in and, and do setup. The other question is, is do you do manual setup or scripted setup? A lot of the guides, you know, you'll follow them online and that's exactly how you do them. It's like type this command, type this other command, move, move these things around, right? But when you're building cloud infrastructure, one of the nice things about it is you can build it, you can update it, and you can tear it down very, very quickly. And so what we end up doing is we end up writing a lot of scripts to, you know, build a new server. So like, let's say I want to resize the server, you know, I say, oh, you know, I need, I need more space or something like that. I can quickly just change some numbers, you know, on, on my computer and then deploy it. And it will go through a process to rebuild and reconnect everything. So I don't have to keep going through the manual process over and over again. And it also, you know, gives good visibility if I want to have another developer review it and say, hey, you know, this is a good way to do it. Am I, am I doing this uh, securely? So there's the server. And then, you know, our server, I set up our server. And so there's, there's a couple programs you run. You run an ETH1 node. You need to sync a full ETH1 node to, to have access. And again, you could do that with an infrastructure provider, but it's nice to have it on your system. You run a beacon chain. You run the validator itself. And then, you know, one of the most important things is monitoring tools. I actually probably spent more time setting up the monitoring tools than I had spent on any other portion of it. And then setting up resiliency for the programs. You know, sometimes programs crash, uh, something goes wrong. 
If you want them to reboot themselves, they might need to reboot themselves in the same order. And you know, you want to sort of lock down that scripting uh, system. And then finally, the monitors scrape data from various places. There's uh, metric endpoints in each one of the systems. We're using a package called Grafana, which is a pretty popular uh, monitoring package. It, it uh, draws out uh, very, very pretty graphs and stuff like that. Uh, and then Prometheus to sort of monitor what's going on with our nodes. Uh, and then the other nice thing about having cloud infrastructure in this manner is we're about ready to uh, launch. But one thing I kind of wish I had done is I wish I had separated out our ETH1 node into a separate server itself, because it takes a while for that to sync. And then if I said, oh, I want to change the way the validator is working, it would be much easier for me to just turn off the validator and then bring it back up. And then it would connect to an already synced ETH1 node. But that's the, one of the nice things about using something like AWS is you can sort of separate out these components. And then the final thing is like uh, security. So we're going to want to be able to log in and, and check our uh, information from our web dashboard, but we just wouldn't want anyone to log into a public website. So we use a, a firewall inside a CDN. There's a CloudFront CDN, and we're using a firewall that, again, you'd have to be inside our private network. You're denied access. And that sort of gives us the best of both worlds. So again, you know, you're sort of like thinking like a spy or, or becoming very paranoid about these things. I, I feel like I have become paranoid doing this project. I literally have titanium plates and metal stamps sitting beside me here. I don't think you were the only one either. I think, Will, when you were the one custodying, like commandeering the ETH, you were like, get this away from me. I don't want to be the one to have it anymore. I think Spencer would frown on my... Uh key storage ways. Once like the price of ETH broke 600 or whatever, I was like, oh, this is a ticking time bomb. This is going to be holding. So listen, everyone should own hardware keys for their computer. If you don't own a hardware key for your computer, I can't take you seriously when you talk about security. One of the promises of, of crypto is as we can tell, like security in computers and in the web is deeply, deeply, deeply broken, right? A hardware key, like a YubiKey or a Google Titan key, are like two-factor authentications. And you've read stories about how people you know, use their phone as two-factor authentication, and then people do these things. So hardware keys are, are special devices that sort of plug into a USB port and uses two-factor authentication. And so if you're someone like me that administers a lot of servers and stuff, I use these all the time. But you should be using them to secure your email. You should be using them to secure everything. It's kind of ironic that we live in the 21st century and like the height of security is like a physical key that you have. I very much recommend anyone to, to start doing that and start doing that now. We're reverting back to the physical. As much as we want the security in the digital, there is a certain kind of anchor that we need. What we can hold and what we see in our eyes is not being stolen or taken away. I think we are trying to take our time with the launch of the Coindesk Validator node. Because our primary goal is to make sure that what we do launch is safe and secure and more than anything, that it is reliable. Um, and as of this recording, January 20th, we're starting to make the final touches on the Coindesk Ethereum 2.0 node and getting ready to, to get into the validator queue for activation on the network. And it's so exciting to know that the process of going through this has largely been focused on security, but also, as you say, a lot of it is also for the data side, like setting up the dashboard, the Grafana part of making sure that when the validator is launched and set up, we're getting the data that we wanted from the outset of this project to take 
a good view on what's going on the Ethereum 2.0 network, real-time data access and and whatnot. I'm feeling very excited for how close we are now to a, a launch product. Will, I mean, I'm sure you be right there with me from the start. Like, you're probably very excited to see how close we are to yeah. successfully seeing this go live. It's been a journey. We'll know shortly, we'll be able to see what is happening with the queue. If people are interested in the exact way we set it up, perhaps in the future, we could uh, share some guides about how we did that. Yeah. And we're doing the hard legwork for other blockchain nodes, other staking ventures that Coindesk would one day embark on, depending on how things go with this. Speaking of you know the blog posts and the different formation, more on the Coindesk validator node, more on this project, more on uh, what kind of data we're getting and what we're seeing after launch. Will, do you want to explain to our listeners on how they can stay up to date, where they can find Spencer's writing um, in the upcoming week? Yeah, so Valid Points has been a weekly newsletter. I think we've been running, first publication was December. Correct me if I'm wrong, man. The weeks are just blending together. Uh, so Valid <laughs> Points, you can subscribe on Coindesk. Uh, we also just publish it every week on Coindesk. That's, so it's Wednesday mornings. Now we're going to be running this podcast series as well, which I think will be Thursdays. Next week, Spencer should be writing up in lieu of my weekly column for New Frontiers. He's looking a little shocked when I said that, so maybe it's the following week. Uh, but he's going to be writing up about his journey in staking for us. Um, then after that, we'll get back to like regular programming where we're just talking about what's new with ETH2. And of course, Christine is coming with that heavy data telling us uh, how the network is doing and what investors should be paying attention to. That's going to be like a really nerdy post. But if you liked our banter, what we talked about today and want to find out more about Ethereum 2.0, more about this exciting project we're embarking on, please do um, check out Valid Points by going to the Coindesk website, coindesk.com. And as Will said too, we're going to be back again next week and chatting further about the Ethereum 2.0 network, not specifically about like the Coindesk project, but more so generally about just ETH 2.0 with our next podcast uh, show guest, who is Ethereum 2.0 developer, Danny Ryan. So please do get your notifications either from Apple or your RSS feed or Spotify, wherever you're getting your podcast to subscribe so that you get the notification when that new episode is up. I just want to thank Spencer so much for your time and for being our very first show guest on this podcast series, Mapping Out ETH 2.0. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. This has been Christine Kim. This is Will Foxley. If you have any questions you would like answered on our podcast about ETH2 or Valid Points Project, you can connect with us via email at research at coindesk.com or on Twitter at, at coindeskdata. Join us again next week for mapping out Ethereum 2.0, Ethereum as it was meant to be. See ya. You have been listening to Mapping Out ETH 2.0, part of the Coindesk Podcast Network. This episode featured Christine Kim and Will Foxley. Today's show is produced, edited, and announced by Michelle Mousseau, with music by Abloom and Tide Electric. Did you enjoy the show? We would love to hear what you think. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your preferred service, and talk to us directly via email at podcasts at coindesk.com.